Please open your Bibles, if you have a Bible, or turn on your phone to Psalm 94, the 94th Psalm. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. On the back of the notes, you'll find the full text for Psalm 94, in case you don't have a Bible. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading Psalm 94. The 94th Psalm. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of peoples, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines nations, Does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute... They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Lord God, as we look to this psalm and we look to your wrath and your judgment Help us to look and not turn away. These are terrible, difficult truths, and yet this is who you are. It's not all of who you are. We are those who have been spared your wrath. We are those who have been um, forgiven, and yet we know that all we were like them, formerly children of wrath. Help us to, to hear your word for us. Help us to Um, respond to the evil around us the way you would have us respond. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I bought one of those wall posters that has all the different names of God on it. We we sang one earlier, Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of Armies, and the the lion and the lamb, the the alpha and the omega. It did not, however, have on it God of vengeance. It might have been a 
an intentional omission? I tend to think not. And what we're looking at this morning, as we look at God's wrath and his vengeance, as the psalmist cries out for God's wrath and vengeance, we look at a very real aspect, side of our God, and yet not the fullness of the story. Um, The Puritans would sometimes speak of God's wrath as his unusual work. You remember we saw even last week in Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who by no means pardons the guilty. So we saw that duality there. There's a God abounding in grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and a God who repays wickedness and sins. And we tend to make much of the first half of that polarity. And and we are right to do so. I I don't think we could make too much of God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's saving love. The Bible has much to say about God's anger and his wrath. These are not things we tend to sing about very often. Interestingly enough, um, the, the psalm title, there is no psalm title in our oldest and best text, but the psalm title in the Greek translation, the LXX, it actually gives you an idea of just how common the Jews understood these seems to be. was a psalm for Wednesday. That's what the LXX says. A psalm of David for the fourth day of the week. This, they're, they're thinking, and that's, that's not, I don't believe, inspired, but it gives you an idea from their mindset of how frequent these types of themes come. They thought every Wednesday would be a good time to turn your thoughts and attentions to themes like this. It just gives you an idea of the culture shift. So we're going to work through this. There's there's a lot here. There's 23 verses. I'm going to move somewhat quickly. But but there are times for this. We'll see in the rest of Scripture. This is not a unique theme. And so one of the things I wanted to do, and when we're going through about 20 Psalms before we get to Ephesians, is looking at the many different themes within the Psalms. And this Psalm does not stand alone. There are many Psalms like this, where the psalmist cries out for God to rise up and judge the earth. And so that's what we'll look at this morning. It's not the fullness of the story, but it is true, and it is right. So we'll look at Psalm 94, rise up, O judge of the earth. Now, its placement is within a block of Psalms, eight Psalms, that focus on dealing with God as king, from Psalm 93 to Psalm 100. And Psalm 93 before is that majestic Psalm about how the oceans, the floods have raised up their voice, and um, Alec Mottier writes this about his placement. In Psalm 93, we sat, so to speak, beside the king, looking down at the world, noting that for all its display of power, it was beneath the Lord. In Psalm 94, we descend into the arena of the world and look up at the king. It's a helpful division. And so this block of Psalms, Psalm 93 to Psalm 100, focuses on God's rule, God's kingship, And one aspect of a king is judgment. As I believe it's placement within the Psalter. So we're going to look at this through five points. The first, in the first seven verses, is a call for action. A call for action. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. 
They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. So in this call for action, we can helpfully, I think, divide it into the what and the why. What is the psalm calling for? First three verses. And why? So the first three verses are a call for, clearly, judgment. Using a very unique title for God. O Lord, God of vengeance. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Now this is not some new revelation just being unfolded here in the Psalms. Again, these themes are woven throughout the scripture. We just tend not to put them up on our walls and on our posters. But if you turn all the way back to Genesis, you don't need to turn there, but if I just cite to you Genesis 18.25, far be it from you, this is Abraham speaking to the Lord, that you should do such a thing to put to righteous, to, to death the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Or Deuteronomy, listen to Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, their doom will come swiftly. And then 41 to 43, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. For the long-haired heads of the enemy rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenged the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. That's, that's Deuteronomy. So what the psalmist here is calling for has plenty of Old Testament precedent and antecedent. God has revealed this is a part of who he is. This is how he acts at times. And this psalmist is saying, now is an appropriate time. Now would be a good time for God to rise up and do this very thing. And so he does it in three exhortations. O God of vengeance, shine forth. That picture of shining forth is being present. Arrive, come, do this justice. One of the things to note, by the way, is even as this song is longing for God's judgment, it is clear who is the one to do the judging. It's God. This psalm does not attempt to take vengeance into our own hands. So even in zeal and even in passion, crying out for judgment and justice, there's never any confusion of whose judgment belongs. It's the Lord's. And so the cry is, O Lord of God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, show up, arrive, be present. A judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. This, by the way, is another emphasis. This is not capricious or vindictive. This is justice. Bring justice. There's this notion of just desert, fitting comeuppance or reward. The psalm is not calling for anything more than what is due. Repay the proud what they deserve. This is justice. That is being called for. It's being called for in strong terms. It's being called for passionately. But make no mistake, this psalm is a cry for justice. It's a cry for justice. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? And there we get some indications to why this psalm is so passionate. What is provoking the psalmist is seeing the wicked rather than being judged, rather than receiving their due, boasting, exulting, celebrating. 
And that is unbearable. The psalmist cries out, God, show up. Do what you said you would do. Be who you've said you are. Repay the wicked. There is a place for that. Let's pause for a moment um, and, and just comment that sometimes people try to resolve this tension. The tension, which I'll freely acknowledge, is that Jesus does he not tells us to turn the other cheek, to pray for our enemies, to bless those who curse us. And there's a tension. Okay, how, how does Jesus say that? And this psalm says, God, get him. And some people have unhelpfully tried to divide and pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. And, and their answer then is, well, th- this is an Old Testament theme, and then Jesus shows up and he corrects things and things get better, and Jesus says to turn the other cheek. It's not nearly that simple. The Old Testament has turned the other cheek as well. The Old Testament has do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And the New Testament, if you turn to Revelation chapter 6, has very, very similar cries. Now, the short answer I'll give you for how to resolve the tension between Jesus' teaching and Psalms like this is I'm not entirely sure. I would say there are times where it is fitting and appropriate to bless those who curse you. It's fitting and appropriate to turn the other cheek. And there are times when you're witnessing injustice where it is wholly appropriate to call on God to show up and judge the earth. Both are fitting. But lest we want to say that this cry is somehow inferior or corrupted or an evidence of a hard heart, let's look at some sinless souls beneath the throne of God in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 6, we read in verse 9 and verse 10, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, would you agree with me that souls in God's throne room are not sinning? They're sinless. God cannot endure wickedness. If they were about to express wicked thoughts, they would be cast out. And what do these sinless souls under the throne of God cry out? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then the Lord comforts them. He doesn't rebuke and correct them. And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Or you can turn over to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul comforts the Thessalonians who are being persecuted, some of the early church persecutions, and he comforts them precisely with the promise of God's coming judgment upon the wicked. And all I'm trying to show you is that you can't make, okay, this is an Old Testament scene. Psalm 94 is an Old Testament text, so we don't sing that. We don't think that. No, it's, it's more complicated than that. He speaks of their suffering, and picking it up in verse 5, since this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So these themes 
show up in the New Testament. You can't simply become a Marcionite and try to rip your Old Testament out and say the Old Testament was about vengeance and punishment. The New Testament's about love. No, no, it's, it's much more complicated than that. I'll, I'll, one other suggestion to help work through that tension is this. For all of the psalmist's concerns, he doesn't enter into it until verse 16. Verse 16 is when you get the me in Psalm 94. So there's no indication in this psalm that the psalmist is dealing with personal offenses, personal effrontery. Rather, the psalmist is witnessing in the world around him wickedness run rampant. And his heart cries out for judgment and justice. And the New Testament makes it very clear that is how the story ends. Judgment is coming. God will judge the quick and the dead. And this is meant to comfort God's people. In fact, I would suggest our confidence in God's coming judgment is precisely why we're able to love our enemies and turn the other cheek. Um, Tim Keller talks about a man in this church who came from the killing fields in Cambodia, and he said it was his belief in the doctrine of hell that enabled him to love his enemies. I don't need to repay because I am certain and confident the Lord God in his time will. That was his rationale. And so suffering Christians at Thessalonica are told, be patient, persevere. The Lord will come and comfort you. The Lord will come and repay. Okay, a call for action. That's the what. That's what is being called upon, pretty clear. Justice, nothing more, nothing less. But immediate, come quickly. Why delay? Why wait? Okay, now, why is judgment deserved? We got the what, now the why. They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. They kill the widow, the sojourner, the murderer, the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. I think we can break their, their guilt into three sections. First, their words. They have proud, arrogant words. They boast. They pour out arrogant words. And what makes part of this even worse is they seem to be getting away with it. They're, they're, they're boasting and they're exulting. They seem to be winning. Whatever they're doing, they're get, seeming to get away with it. That's part of why this psalm is crying out. And it can be right of you when you see wickedness happening, when you see the, the powerful and the strong oppressing others and boasting in it and getting applause to cry out, Oh God, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They are proud. Next, we see they do violence. They, they crush and afflict and kill the Lord's heritage. Now, note that pairing in verse 5. Your people and your heritage. It will appear again in verse 14. His people, his heritage. We'll, we'll get there. So they, they have these arrogant words and they boast and they exult. But it's not just their arrogance. They're actually doing harm and violence. They're crushing God's people they're afflicting God's heritage. And then, restating it, they're killing the weakest of the weak, the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. Now, again and again in Scripture, God shows his heart for the weak and the dispossessed. In fact, again, in Deuteronomy, God makes it clear he's not just going to be worshipped by the strong and the powerful. Deuteronomy 16.11 you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So when God speaks of who his people are, he makes it clear he's not excluding the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. They're his people. 
God cares about the widow, the orphan, and the fatherless. James warns us about the danger of having orthodox theology, of of being able to recite creeds and scripture, and yet not having a heart for these weak, disenfranchised people. He warns us, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained. From the world. So these boasting, arrogant, wicked people are crushing the Lord's people and his heritage, and specifically, they are targeting the weakest of the weak, the most defenseless among them, the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. So, again, we're not getting it. This is personal affrontery. It's not, oh Lord, judge the wicked because they did this to me. Rather, this psalm is seeing wickedness done in the land. It's a concern for, shall I say, social justice. There's real crimes being committed with real victims, murder and death. And so they deserve God's judgment because of their evil boasting and their words. They're proud. They deserve God's judgment because they are crushing, afflicting, and killing God's people as heritage. And the third is their theology. These people think they're going to get away with it. They believe that God does not see or pay heed They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. What's God going to do about it? Nothing, they say. Which again helps understand why it's so frustrating and infuriating and painful to watch them boast and with glee as they appear to triumph. They say that God does not see. Now, if you know anything about the God of the Bible, he sees. In fact, the beginning of the Exodus story, it was one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Exodus 2, 23, 25, as Moses begins to tell about how God would raise up a deliverer for his people, he begins the story this way. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cries for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so the entire Exodus is framed with the God who knows and sees and cares and remembers acting. And these bold, wicked, arrogant fools think, God's not going to do anything. God's not going to do anything. Which then, from the call to action, brings us to contempt for fools. Contempt for fools. There's a play on words here. The word that ends verse 7 in the ESV is perceive, links with verse 8, understand. So they say God doesn't understand, and that turns around, wait a second, you understand, buddy. Understand, O dullest of the peoples, fools, when will you be wise? So the first is a call to pay heed. This is a rebuke. This is a chastisement against these wicked. Um, To pay heed yourself, O most brutish of people. It's a similar language to Psalm 92. If you turn back a page, it's verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 92. Similar pairing of words. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed 
to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. And so then here's the instruction. And through a series of rhetorical questions, the point is made explicitly. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. And so we see that your maker hears, sees, rebukes, and knows. Your maker hears, sees, rebukes, and knows. Now, the, 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 the linking thought in all of this is God as maker. If God made you, then he made your ear, and he understands hearing. If God made you, and he made your eyes, and he understands seeing. If God has given us knowledge and instruction, then he, he knows what information and content. And again, just thinking of Exodus 4.10, when, when Moses says, I can't go, I don't have a mouth to speak. The Lord said to him, who made man's mouth, who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind, and so the, the rebuke to these wicked, arrogant people is God knows perfectly well. If God is not judging you in this very moment, there's a reason for it. And it's not that he doesn't see. And it's not that he doesn't care. And it's not that he doesn't know or that he doesn't hear. He sees and he hears the God of the world who judges nations will judge you. He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath. To put a theological word in, he is omniscient. Make no mistake about that. Whatever God's doing in his delay, it's not a lack of care, it's not a lack of knowledge, it's not a lack of sight, it's not a lack of understanding. So, now we turn from contempt for fools to comfort for the chastened. And then we break here into a beatitude. Almost like Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. And I think this is possibly some of the turning point within this psalm. Up until this point, there's been nothing but anger and indignation and zeal against the wicked who would dare to boast, who would dare to exalt themselves this way, who would dare to utter such perverse things about God, who would dare to strike down God's heritage, who would dare to deny the Lord's knowledge, the Lord's concern, and then I can almost imagine as if the psalmist writing this, as he's crawling on God to judge the wicked, a thought occurs in the back of his mind, but, but I do wicked things. See, this isn't about the righteous and the unrighteous. This isn't about the sinners and the sinless. If, if the psalmist is disciplined by the Lord, what does that mean? He, he does wrong, right? You get disciplined by a righteous judge or king for wrongdoing. And he's looking even at his own sufferings and seeing the goodness of God in it. And we've got on the contrast, the wicked who seem to be getting away with it. They're exulting. They're throwing a party. They're excited. Their corrupt, boasting words are coming out of their mouth. And here's him being disciplined, and he sees the goodness of God in it. That is, that is a paradigm shift, isn't it? To see the wicked exalted, boasting, exulting, to see yourself disciplined, and to say, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. 
I think that's one of the keys when you're looking at injustice in the world. Even as the wicked are doing wickedly, even as evil men are doing evilly, meaning evil, God is at work in and through that. We remember the early church gathering, um, celebrating the death of our Lord, simultaneously ascribing it. This wicked men did this. Pontius Pilate and the Romans and the Jews. And what they do, they did everything that your sovereign plan had predetermined would take place. Being able to see both the will, the intent, the causality of man and its evil, and God at work, his good purposes, enables you to simultaneously cry out for the judgment of the wicked and blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. This also helps take some of the self-righteousness out of this psalm, right? If I need discipline, then we're all the bad guys. So I'm the good guy, and they're the bad guys, and God, go get the bad guys. We're, we're bad guys, too. There's only one good guy. It's Jesus. And so this psalm here turns and begins to look inwardly. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So comfort for the chastened. First, point A, God disciplines all those he instructs in his law. He says that through what's called apposition. He renames it. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Who's that? Whom you teach out of your law. In fact, if you, you don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews reminds us of this truth. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're Illegitimate children are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained in it. God disciplines his children, and in doing so, he teaches them. You, you want to know God's word better? You want to grow in your knowledge of him? It will likely come in many ways and pass through discipline as he, as he refines you, as he puts his finger on areas that he wants you to, to grow and change in, as he burns off the dross in your life. The path of the knowledge of God is painful. I, I almost describe it like you're, you're covered in filth and there's a light you kind of come out of the woods and there's a, there's a street light. And the closer you get to the light, the more filth you see on you. So you, you wipe some more off and you take some more steps forward and you see some more filth. And as we draw closer to God, what do we see? More and more of our uncleanness. That, that's the Christian life. We, this side of, of eternity, we never stop having to get up and confess and repent and pursue Christ. And in this way, the Lord disciplines and teaches us his law. But it's not just that. He also gives rest in the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. So God, God has his eye on his people. Even if he delays in judgment, he is shepherding, disciplining, teaching his people. He's giving them rest. 
until a pit is dug for the wicked. There's a confidence here of judgment. The psalmist isn't doubting whether God will judge. He just wants him to do it sooner rather than later. But Derek Kidner writes, in God's economy, the pit dug for the wicked is largely dug by the wicked. And this is not done in a day, nor without general havoc. You think of what God said to Abraham, that he was going to send his people down to Egypt. Why? Because the sin of the Ammonites was not yet fulfilled or filled up. So a pit is being dug. Judgment is coming. may not be now. So he takes comfort in, in his discipline and instruction. But next he takes comfort that God will not abandon his heritage. And here we get that picking up those two terms from verse 5. What's the charge against the wicked? They're crushing your people, O Lord, and afflicting your heritage. Here, even as the wicked pursue and attack the Lord's people and his heritage, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So even as God delays in judgment of the wicked, he is still protecting and preserving his people. He is still guarding them shepherding them. And and the final comfort offered here is that God will bring justice to the righteous who will follow it. Verse 15, for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright of heart will follow it. So the time we're living in now is a time where wicked tyrants and evildoers and proud boasters may well exalt and boast and say wicked things. They may well pursue and oppress the Lord's people and his heritage, the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. And in that, as God waits, as that pit is getting dug deeper and deeper, God is disciplining his people. He's shepherding his people. He's teaching his people. He's giving his people rest. And he is not forsaking them. And he tells us to take comfort in the knowledge that justice will come. It will return. This, again, is why the New Testament puts the return of the Lord, the establishment of his kingdom, the judgment of the nations, as a great cause of hope, There's assumed that we're feeling the dissonance, we're feeling the tension, that we're longing for this. And it's put out before us as a great encouragement. Now, finally, in the fourth section, the psalm moves to confidence of deliverance. And finally, now, the psalmist himself shows up. Here's where we first get our me's and my's. I noted to you that this is not primarily a psalm about personal offense and affrontery. Rather, the psalmist is seeing the wickedness in the land around him. But now the psalmist shows up with his own testimony. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoer? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So the confidence of deliverance. We get this personal first-hand testimony of the psalmist to God's faithfulness. It's almost buttressing the promises in verses 13 through 15 here, the past testimony of God's faithfulness. We, we saw in verse 14, the Lord will not abandon his people. He will not forsake his people or abandon his heritage. Here in verses 17, 16, sorry, 16 through 19, the psalmist testifies to exactly that. God has upheld me. Only God is able to protect and preserve. Only God is able to protect and preserve. And and again, one of the things to point out, the Psalms deal with social justice, social injustice, wickedness in the land. 
But one of the things to understand, and this is a theme that many in our day are caught up with, that while the Bible would encourage us to, to pursue justice on the earth, the ultimate satisfaction of that desire for justice is eschatological. It is the Lord God bringing justice. There is no human justice that will ever suffice. There is no human justice that will ever do justice rightly. It's always looking to the Lord God. So yes, let us pursue justice in our land. Let us pursue just laws. Let us put our hope in a coming king who will set up a kingdom where righteousness reigns. Only God is able to protect and preserve. He speaks about his, his past dilemmas. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in a land of silence. So the Lord has protected and preserved him. Second, the Lord's steadfast love, his chesed, has upheld him. Stopped his foot from slipping. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. This is, this is the other side. The, the first half of the psalm focuses on the, the apparent triumph of the wicked. But in and through that is God shepherding his people. And even as the psalmist recounts his past, we see the faithfulness of God in and through that. Even as the evil Doers may appear to triumph here and there. God is king and he is guarding and preserving his people in and through that. And finally, his comfort cheers the soul. What the psalmist lifts is a number of dilemmas he's been in. First, the danger of the wicked, right? In verses 16 and 17, who rises up against, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in silence. So you've got the direct danger of wicked evildoers. Second, his own danger of slipping, whether that's a spiritual slipping, him sliding, or speaking again still of danger, I don't know. But the solution is God's steadfast love upholding him. Next, we see the anxieties and cares of his heart. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. You know, another name of God, in addition to God of vengeance, and one that I cherish, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul speaks of the God of all comfort. The Psalm 94 is true, but it's not the full story of our God. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so even though the wicked are not yet being judged, even though the wicked are not yet being recompensed, God is comforting his people, he's preserving his people, he's shepherding his people, he's teaching his people, he's upholding his people. His comfort cheers the soul. His comfort cheers the soul. Which brings us then to the final segment of the psalm. And it closes in many respects where it began. We've taken this tour. First section, the indignation, the, the zeal, the urgency of God's need to judge. Then turning an inward eye on his own judgment of his people. His, his refining, his chastising, his, his securing them, his guarding and shepherding them. And 
Perhaps the psalmist is now a little more willing to be patient as he's considered God's faithfulness in and through this adversity. But there is a certain judgment coming. Make no mistake, there is a certain judgment coming. So point A, wicked rulers make God their enemy in their evil. Wicked rulers make God their enemy in their evil. Here we get a little bit more information with these wicked men that are so vexing the psalmist. At least some of them have some sort of political power. And they may even be claiming to be doing God's work. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent man to death. And the point is this, God hates injustice and he hates wickedness. And so when wicked rulers do wickedly in their perversion of justice, they make God their enemy. He is opposed to them. Despite what they may say about doing his work, doing his will, being his instrument, they are not allied with the Lord. Rather, he becomes their enemy. And, and that can be some of the, the grossest injustices is when it's legislated. Um, during the Holocaust, there were wicked and corrupt laws passed in Germany. Our own country has a history. Jim Crow laws and laws about people with certain melanin counts having less rights. Our own wicked rulers have framed injustice by statute, have they not? They have. I praise God that we, in many respects, have remedied those injustices, but we have. This has been in our, these are some of the types of things the psalmist might be looking at. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. Well, it's legal. We're just, I mean, the Nuremberg trials are just filled with people saying, we're just following the law, just following our orders. Institutional injustice is still injustice. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. And here we get some insight again to how maybe they're killing these people. It's perhaps not bands of, of roving, arrogant, wealthy people, but rather through wicked laws, framed injustice, condemning. I can imagine uh, a slave reading this and, and resonating very well. With, with the way oppression and injustice was carried out through statute. And again, the hope of this is not, but there will be a civil war and they'll be set free. Praise God, slavery has ended. The hope is verse 22. The Lord has become my stronghold and my rock and my refuge. And that's, of course, the danger. Let us pursue justice and righteousness in the world. Let us never think that will satisfy let us never think that is the ultimate goal. As we deal with sin in this world, it's the Lord God who is our stronghold and our refuge. He is our hope. Wicked rulers make God their enemy in the world and make, make God their enemy in their evil. But God protects his people and is their stronghold. And then the psalm ends with a statement of absolute certainty. He, he asked for it in the first three verses in the last verse, it's stated as a certainty. He will, there's your blank, God will wipe them out for their iniquity. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them 
out. So as we get ready to close, I'd ask you to turn to Romans 2. What do we, what do we get from this? I want to offer you at least two points of application here. The first is as you are distressed by injustice that you see around you, as you are distressed by the boasting pomp of wicked men, unjust laws, institutional injustice, wherever you see it, understand that God's people throughout history have been vexed by such things. And as long as you channel your voice along lines like Psalm 94, as long as you give it to the Lord, God bless you. God has given you songs to sing when you are overcome with anguish and zeal at the wickedness and injustice of man. The Bible is a very real book. And and so do not take vengeance into your own hand. Do not say you will repay. Leave it to God and cry out to him. But the second is this. God has delayed. And he's brought little mini judgments on people. But the final judgment is awaiting And God has a purpose in that. I want you to read Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. One of the reasons the Lord God has delayed his judgment is to give men and women like you and me and like men and women in the nations of the world a time to repent. God in his kindness has held back judgment to allow an opportunity for the gospel to go out, to allow a time where men may turn to him And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the impetus for missions, is God has restrained his judgment. The day of wrath is not yet here. It's coming. It could be later this afternoon or tomorrow or next year or next century, but it is coming with certainty. And yet God delays. And in that delay, we've seen he shepherds his people. In that delay, he cares for us and he upholds us. And in that delay, he gives you and he gives me a chance to get right with him. And he gives us a chance to share that good news with others as well. So given the certainty of judgment, given the reality that our God is a God of many things, but he's a God of vengeance, the first thing I would ask you to consider is, are you at peace with him or does his wrath abide over you? All who do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides over them. John's gospel gives us that with certainty. You you will not escape. God takes note of you and me. The God who judges nations will judge you, will judge me. And you can turn from your wickedness, turn from your rebellion, turn to his Son, place your trust in him, be forgiven, be reconciled to him. Be one of his sons and daughters, be one of his heritage, be one of his people. And you can speak that word of life to your neighbor while God's judgment delays and bring more into the fold. Human history ends with cataclysmic, absolute, final judgment. The sheep are separated from the goats. And the final destinations of all involved are eternal. But now is the day of salvation. Now God's kindness is 
It's meant to lead us to repentance. Let us take that seriously, first in our own lives, and then in our preaching of the gospel to our neighbors. Let's pray, Lord God. We just ask that you would um, help us to live aware of your coming judgment. You will judge the world and the world leaders, the nations and the peoples, and they are but a dust in the scales. And yet you delay in your kindness, in your forbearance, you delay. You've delayed long enough for us to be born, for us to come to faith in you. Do you delay and you continue to delay? Let us not presume upon your grace and your kindness. Let us not presume upon your patience and believe the delusion that because you have delayed this long, you will never come in judgment. You will. Let us live soberly in that reality, realizing that the time is short, your hand is on the door, and your recompense comes with you. The Lord Jesus will come to render out vengeance among those who do not believe and to be marveled at among his saints. So, Lord God, let us live in light of that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. We will gather back in here at half past to hear from our visitors.